Welcome to another edition of the Dugout Podcast here on WFI with myself, Andy Wales. This is a podcast that covers a wide variety of football topics from very different perspectives. And we've previously covered such topics as fan culture in German football, the competition for promotion from the English Championship, and even Pep Guardiola last time out. But today we are going to look at alcohol in football. Uh, one of my favourite things, alcohol and football, kind of all got together. Uh, and writing as well with author Ben Roberts. So, uh, hello Ben, welcome to the show. Hi Andy, thanks for having me. Pleasures, pleasures all ours. So, um, you've been on WFI before to talk about your previous book, um, Gunshots and Goalposts. But uh, please do tell the listeners about uh, your latest book that's titled Bottled. So, yeah, uh, so Gunshots and Goalposts was uh, on Northern Irish football a couple of years ago and then just released uh, in the last four or five weeks through Pitch Publishing Bottles, which is subtitled English Football's Boozy Story. Basically, uh, a history of alcohol and football and how uh, they're sort of the two industries, the two pastimes have intersected with one another and, and kind of uh, used each other for for promotional purposes and, and just how they really tie into each other and how they have done since the, the origins of, of football. And, and and dare I ask, was was there an awful lot of um, <clears throat> research that went into this? I mean, in the sense that uh, I don't drink today um, because I, I, well, I'd say I can't. You know, I choose not to because uh, I was in, in sort of early parts of my life uh, perhaps too fond of drinking so you could say that there was a, a hell of a lot of research that went into it <laughs> yeah uh, i dare say i've done a lot of research on the topic myself but never been able to write a book because <laughs> i probably couldn't remember half of what i've done but <laughs> anyway so yeah i mean the book itself thing more into that a little a little bit into that of the what you mentioned, you know, the origins of actual drink with within the game itself. Uh, you kind of expand on that a little bit. So you you had a situation when football clubs were were coming into being, particularly the football clubs that became professional football clubs rather than the amateur football clubs that were in London and the southeast, but the professional ones, which uh, at the start tended to be in the Midlands or the Northwest. A lot of them came out of workplaces, so sort of clubs that workplaces had or that workers decided to have. Um, and if they didn't come out of a workplace, they often came out of churches. Um, and part of the reason that churches were keen to have football teams was because alcohol consumption in the 1870s had, had reached a real high watermark for, for the 1800s and really more than anything that we've seen since either. So there was a real concern that men who had a bit more free time than they'd had in the in the previous decades because of the Factory Acts um, in the mid-1870s meant instead of working six days a week, for a lot of men, particularly ones that worked in factories, funnily enough, um, were only working five and a half days a week, which meant that on Saturdays they were finishing at, at midday 
Um, and there was a, a fear that by 12.01, they'd be straight down the pub and they'd be there for 10, 11 hours. And, you know, it would lead to this sort of um, really kind of debauched um, society of just these just these drunken men. So the church has kind of thought, mm, you know, we're not perhaps the biggest fans of football in, in some, you know, particularly some of the sort of higher churches of the Anglicans. But, but the non-conformist churches, Baptists, Methodists and so on, uh, thought actually we can we can make an accommodation with this. And, so, you know, we might we might not love it, but it means that these men are getting some exercise, perhaps if they're playing, um, it's keeping them busy, it's keeping them fit. And if they're not playing, well, they might go and watch a match and, you know, they might go and watch a match and drink. But at least they're not just going to the pub and drinking. You know, if they go to a match, it'll slow down how they drink and you know they might then go home after the match instead of staying in the pub so you had that part of it and then a lot of those clubs that had come out of churches within sort of five ten years of their foundation um, the football league is starting to come in by the 1888 um, you've got the FA Cup as a competition so there's a realization from from the players and the clubs that Actually, they need a bit more money to be able to travel around and play these games um, and sort of pay their players, even if they were paying them under the table. And so the the businesses that sought to capitalise on that were pubs. And what you've got to remember is there were so many more pubs then than there are now. I think the average person in this country, in the UK, was no more than five minutes walk from a pub at the time. Um, I think it's way more than 13 minutes or something now. So basically almost three times as long a walk um, on average to the pub now than it was back then. So pubs were everywhere. So there was a lot of competition. The brewery industry was a lot more stratified than it is now. So you'd have had, you know, 10 or 12 different breweries. You would have had regional breweries and all sorts of stuff. So they wanted to promote their pubs that were near to the ground. Um, and they might have five or six of them. And they could do that by sponsoring the club, perhaps investing in the club, getting some of their people to be um, directors, shareholders in the club. And then they could put their name across the top of one of the stands once they started to get stands. And a lot of the clubs that did start to build stands, like Man United uh, with Old Trafford, that was financed um, by the Manchester Brewery, by um, John Henry Lees. Um, similar situation at Man City with their ground. And then they could run the, the bars in those in those grounds and kind of direct the, the people leaving the match back to their premises. Um, you know, they could have certain deals that they did in in the surrounding area. Um, and quite often, particularly the case for the, the sort of best players and the most high-profile high players at the time, who would have been local rather than national celebrities, um, they would say, well when they were coming towards the end of their career, why why don't you become the landlord of one of our pubs? And you can perhaps do that for 10 years and it'll be great for you and it'll be really great for us um, because it will attract a lot of customers um, to that pub because you're a local legend. Mm. So do you, do you think it's fair to perhaps say then that it's, um, you know, the, the, the working class origins of the game can... Uh, not exclusively be traced back to this, but uh, certainly entrenched in in this um, strong link between the the background of the, of the like you say the pubs, the churches to go with football. Yeah, uh, for sure. 
Um, and that's, as I say, particularly the case in those, those sort of Northwestern and Midlands clubs who, when they sort of before professionalism came in, so when they weren't allowed to pay players, what they could do was sort of uh, make an arrangement with a local brewery. So players were coming down from Scotland in their droves. Burnley were a particularly big um, proponent of this. And what, what they would do was sort of do these deals with breweries. So these players could come down, play for Burnley. They couldn't pay them because they weren't allowed to. But they could say, we've sorted you out a job in this pub. Um, so Burnley Burnley did that at various points. I think Sunderland were known for it. Um, Aston Villa. But the churches, there were some sort of churchmen who stayed involved with clubs like um, Clegg in Sheffield. Um, and he, he was at various points involved in Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United. And he at one point was known to have sacked a player um, because I think it was Sheffield Wednesday had a, a rule against a player either living or working in a public house and one of the players um, was found to be doing that and and he was given his marching orders basically so there was a little bit of a tension there but it was definitely uh, a sort of a, a way that you know it was in those in those areas it was a working man's sport by and large and the sort of pub trade the licensed trade was was one way of of keeping these men in a bit of money yeah for, for a minute I was there, I thought you were going to say um, they, they brought them down and paid. You couldn't pay them money, but paid them in beer tickets instead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I'm sure that happened as well. But, um, I think by, there was something uh, in 1904. There was, I think it was Tottenham's captain at the time, J.L. Jones. Um, he said that beer um, was a recognised article of the footballer's diet. Um, so that was sort of uh, 15 odd years after. The football league had come in, and the you know the game was sort of building itself, and and even by then it was it was known that footballers like to drink, and that fans like to buy a drink for them, which you know really carried on perhaps you know until the nineteen ninety. You know, I'm sure there's still fans that buy players a drink, but yeah. they don't tend to drink in the same places anymore. But <laughs> really, for hundred odd years footballers and fans drank in the same places and fans wanted to buy drinks for players. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it kind of mirrors um, in the way, much of the way that the, the game has gone. Um, so, I mean, obviously, this, so this is your book and you, you're going into the uh, to the into the history of the game and, and these links that it has. But but what about you yourself? Then? How, how did you get into to football? What was you know, when, when did it kind of grab you? When did it become your passion? What what was it about the game that, that really drew you in? I think probably like a lot of young boys, I was a bit of a stato. Um, um, my cousin's about 10 years younger than me. Um, I remember maybe when I'm 18 and he was eight or something, he was a massive stato as well. You know, he just he just loved all the all the sort of figures around it and all the, you know, he could tell you about some guy in the youth team that you'd never heard of and stuff like that. So it was a bit like that. Um, I sort of, I didn't quite settle on, on a, a team straight away. I think when I was eight, it was about 1993 or something, and Norwich were doing quite well. They had that really disgusting sort of flecked kit. So I liked watching Norwich for maybe a year or something. There was a few years when I when I enjoyed watching Chelsea on TV. My dad took me to... Stanford Bridge a few times, and but I think by the time I'm 
I don't know, 10 or 11, I realised that my dad's a Charlton fan and and I should be a Charlton fan as well. And uh, so, you know, we start going along with my dad and my brother to, to Charlton. And that's when I sort of really properly sort of fell in love with it and, and sort of realised my my uh, my true allegiances and, and my roots there. And yeah, really went from from there in that respect to, to where I am today, which is worrying whether Lyle Taylor got in, injured on international duty with Montserrat. So this with a mud world of football and so I mean that's that's it that's how it grabs you there's everyone has their own sort of thing and then once you attach yourself to a club that's it you just can't you can't shake that it is your club it's your love it's your passion um but in terms of then football into the writing how, how do you transition to that then is it is it just a case of you find that you you have a, a flair for for something and you want to um, express your passion through this yeah, I think I was, I mean, not to sort of blow my own trumpet or whatever, but I was pretty good at writing when I was at secondary school. English teachers would say that. And then I, I you know, did all right in my A-levels stuff. I went to university. I was absolutely hopeless at university. I didn't graduate. found it really hard to write anything. It was, it was all a bit of a struggle, really. So sort of, I suppose it was just sort of buried. And I, I just thought I can't do it and, and that was probably the case um, for 10 years and maybe maybe four or five years ago um, I, I wrote blogs not even on football really but I guess that made me realise that you know I might not be the greatest writer in the world but I could still I could still string a few sentences together um, and then uh, perhaps three years ago three and a half years ago or something there was a a symposium at the university near near to me on a book about England's 1966 tournament but it was really a book about the whole kind of uh, what was going on in England at that time and and it, you know, it wasn't just about the tournament in fact it was very little about the tournament it was about 1966 and uh, I sat there and I thought you know sounds quite interesting I you know bought that book I thought I wonder if there's something that I could write about you know just a few thousand words or something I could just put it up on a website and and, and I thought well you know I'm, I'm English but uh, as much as I'm English my, my dad was born in Northern Ireland um, you know there's a lot written about England I wonder if I could write write about Northern Ireland uh, so I did and that went from a few thousand words to six or seven thousand words to uh, you know um, my, my dad said to me why don't why don't you do 20, 25,000 words or something, you could publish it as like a Kindle short or something. So, oh yeah, I'll crack on. And then by the time I got that far, I thought, well, this is going to be a whole book. And uh, and a few months, well, sort of six, seven, eight months later or something, it was a whole book. Um, and that one, I deliberately just chose to publish that myself. My dad had a bit of a background in publishing, so we knew what we were doing never look for a publisher for that one it was really I suppose looking at it now it was just, just a, a, a sort of proving to myself that this was something that I, I could do and that you know I could I could knuckle down to it and, and I wasn't uh, kind of I hadn't lost lost my lost my touch yeah again it's it's just finding that thing isn't it that sparks your passion that that really gets it flowing rather than um, you're just churning it out for the for the sake of I it I really think it 
yeah, I really think it is like it. You know, it took it took me finding and doing it, finding a finding something that I could write expensively about, and b doing it on my own terms. You know, it wasn't like this has got to be done by the sixth of February, or you know, you're gonna fail this or whatever. It was just, you know, I can do this at my own pace, and and it, you know, it turned out well. You mentioned you know you started off blogging. Obviously, it was quite a popular thing. There's there's lots of football blogging sites out there. There's a, there's a whole plethora of um, football fan sites and, and websites with uh, articles and backgrounds. And, and there's more and more football books now for all sorts of different topics and whatnot. So, just what goes into that process of writing a book that's you know that's going to get published. Uh, what is that process? How does it start? How do you, do you think? Right, I'm going to I'm going to write this book. I'm going to put this together. It's going to be that, or is it just kind of naturally ebb and flow, and it just comes together and evolves into the book that you have? I think that that first one, gunshots and goalposts. I could have done with planning it better at the start because if you don't plan it very well at the start, you end up having to go back and sort of do a lot of chopping up and moving around and you think oh, I would have benefited from a, a much more structured thing so this time around with Bottled I, I did try and uh, with with this one it, it has a publisher it's, it's published by Pitch Publishing so I had to do a proposal um, which was good for me really because it meant that I had to get my thoughts in order before I actually started doing anything and I had to say right this is who I'm going to go and talk to this is what else is out there this is, you know, this is where I'm going to go. This is the order. This is how I think the order's going to be. And it's not that some of those things didn't change because they did. Um, but it, it sort of forced a bit of order on it right from the start. Um, in a way that that first book, which was a much more of an experiment, um, didn't have. But I dare say, if I if I write a third book or a fourth book, you know, I could be a lot more organised and structured. Uh, right from the start than than I even was this time I think certainly for me anyway I've learned so much you know from these first two which is which is not to to sort of do them down at all but I think you just you just have this learning curve um, and and each each experience gives you gives you a bit more insight for the next time yeah so so if you've got a subject that you want to write on and and then you like you say you've you've come up with a plan of of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it in terms of the actual writing the actual you know putting i suppose the old way would be pen to paper but um, obviously nowadays that's not actually the case not literally anyway what is then entailed is it the kind of thing where you've got to sit down every day and you just got to do a bit at a time every single day or is it just um when it when it catches you or i i think with gunshots and goalposts there was periods of time for weeks on end where I wouldn't write anything. With this one, it's been been different. Um, a, I had a very, uh, a much more sort of firm deadline for it. It needed to be done by a certain date. Um, and B, I, I very deliberately and consciously just tried to sit down every day for three months and just write a thousand words a day for three months. And then I thought, well, I'll have a, I'll have more than a book then, and then for the next couple of months after that, I can just sit down and edit that and tweak it and add to it where it needs to be added to and be 
chopped off where it can be chopped off. So, I, I, you know, I had 30,000 more words than actually ended up in the book. Um, now, don't get me wrong, some of those were complete dross. They were probably never going to make it. But having that, that practice of just doing a thousand words a day, um, I found really helpful for me. And then once I got that, I, uh, I just went, I, I found the cheapest caravan holiday I could find. It was only about 20, 20 miles from where uh, my wife and I live. Just thought, right, where's the cheapest place I can go and stay? I'm just going to go and stay there for a week. And I'm just going to take a week off work and just treat this for a week as if it's my job you know I'll just sit in the caravan from nine to five and and just kind of finesse and polish um this manuscript that I've got and I'd I'd sort of sought the input of another writer that um I really respect and and he'd given me some feedback and I used that week to to just just go through that really. Uh, and what about because obviously with your book it's because it's it's talking about history and going into obviously facts and, and whatnot then the, what about the research then do, do you have to kind of put aside a lot of time to research before you you do periods of writing or would you kind of mix it mix and match in between there was there was a bit of mix and matching but i'd say there was a good couple of months before i actually started writing where i was either reading a lot or I was going off to places like, you know, I went off to um, just into Hampshire, um, just on the Hampshire-Sussex border to talk to the guys at Forcing Chance, the clinic that Tony Adams founded when he'd been sober for a few years. And then, you know, you got obviously uh, talking to people on the phone, uh, sometimes emailing people, talking to other authors and seeing who they've talked to and seeing if they put you in touch with certain people, which a few a few of uh, my fellow pitch publishing authors were were kind enough to do um, and then you know sometimes as it's going on I found well actually the I've got really a lot of insight from this side of it but it'd be really good to speak to somebody else and just trying to find a contact there and then and then find the time you know quite quite far into the the book's journey to to speak to uh, to a certain player and the op- that opportunity came up um, and I was able to uh, get that. You know, I think that it was important that that was part of the the, uh, the finished article. So I think, I mean, it might be, it's probably different for different people, to be honest. I can only speak for myself, but I I have a full-time job, um, whereas for, for some people writing books, their, their full-time job might already be in sports journalism or, you know, they might have got a nice, a uh, nice big advance or something and they're able to take three or four months off or something to run the book um, and I, I didn't have that luxury so it was about it, it, it was about sort of fitting fitting these things in and working to uh, a schedule realistic for me yeah so so if any budding writers that are listening to this and 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 perhaps like like myself and and you you know they they do have full-time jobs and that you know talking about football writing about football it is is a, is a passion that you have to make time for yourself then what what kind of tips would you give give to them then if they, if they were hoping to to put something together themselves and, and write a book i think uh the thing i said five or ten minutes ago the thousand words a day now for for somebody else that might be 
250 words a day or 500 words a day or something. But I think putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard and just writing something, as I say, a lot of what I wrote was basically rubbish. Um, but you've got to sort of write through the rubbish um, to, to get to the better stuff. Um, and then you can you can really hone and finesse that better stuff. And that's the stuff that goes in. But but having that discipline certainly for me was was really important. So I think just, you know, for me, it was just putting putting myself out there uh, last November or whenever it was and just sending off a few proposals and probably in my heart. Hurts. I thought I'm not going to get any responses to these, or I just get a thanks but no thanks. And I sent it to two or three people with a proposal, uh, two or three publishers, at least two anyway. Um, one of them I have not heard back from to this day. So, but of course I did hear back from Pitch Publisher, um, and and they liked the idea. And you know, I, I can't say hand on heart that I I thought that that was going be the response so I think maybe just putting yourself out there a little bit sounds a bit, bit like a bit of a cliche um, but you know if, if you've got a good idea and you really think it's a good idea it probably is yeah and you mentioned you know all that work on whittling it down and editing I mean do, do you feel it's important to maybe have somebody else to to edit and and go over your work for you to you know to give you that um that outside opinion a hundred percent yeah and I think the less they know you, the the better. Um, with my first book, the the editor of of that book essentially was my dad, um, because it was self published, um, and his feedback was really good. But you know, I had to edit it a lot more myself, I suppose, because it was your flesh and blood isn't going to criticise you um, in the way that somebody else might. Um, so, so I had to be a lot more self-critical in that first book. Um, whereas um, with this other one, now John McKenzie is somebody that, you know who I talk with fairly frequently, and uh, we took him along to a Charlton match the other week. But you know, with the best uh, best one in the world, he, he we we don't know each other particularly well. So um, he felt able to um, uh, uh, kind of offer a bit more of a critique on some of the 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 weaker parts of the original manuscript and say you know this is where you're really strong and this is the the bit where you can really cut at will so and it was good to have um more words than i needed so that that cutting um could be really ruthless yeah that 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 um that, that pair of eyes with no sort of prior relationship like you, like you say, that there's no sort of conflict of interest, no worrying of or upsetting you or saying something that you perhaps maybe don't want to hear. You know, someone you know might just want to tell you the things that they think you want to hear. So that you, you think it's it's vital to to get that outside um, pair of eyes on it. And I suppose as well as you, think, you yeah. maybe see you maybe pick something up and you realise some things that you you didn't even realise, and you could so, so I suppose maybe tweak little aspects of it and. You look at it yeah, and think, yeah, actually, bit, yeah, that's better now. There was a bit that I was going to get rid of. I said, I just don't think it fits. And he went, no, that bit's really good. You've got, to, you've got to find a way to keep that in. So, you know, sometimes when you think something's crap, 
somebody else would come along and say, no, actually, that bit's really good. Like, that's the bit that you should keep. Yeah. Uh, what about any key differences between the two books then? Uh, you found sort of like, have you mentioned some parts of the process there, obviously learning from that first to the second book. Um, do, you, do you think there's some real, real key differences that you would take forward onto uh, a third one? I mean, I think just having a few weeks before Bottle, uh, most recent one came out, and I was looking back at gunshots and goalposts, and I definitely write shorter sentences now, <laughs> which, you know, some people might say, oh, you know, love a, love a long sentence, but uh, I think the shorter sentences uh, are probably a, a good thing. Obviously, you don't want to get, you don't want book five or something to be writing kind of four-word sentences. I just think having a bit more clarity and I think so much of it just comes through through repetition and through practice and just through um, sort of keeping at um, it sounds really like cliched and really trite and boring but I think you you don't learn unless you do with something like that you know you've got to kind of exercise that that creative muscle so I, I think that's that's definitely one big thing that I've noticed just in myself between between those two um, I, I think just the, on the organizational side as well just kind of having a clear idea right I think this is going to go there I think this is going to go there as I say you know John and I ended up uh, saying actually I think this bit would actually benefit from being you know near the beginning of the book or something but I think having having that idea kind of before before you really start getting into it, um, it is helpful. Um, I just made a lot of uh, a lot of shorter chapters as well, which I think is. I don't know if this might have been. I might have been saying something different if I was talking about something like this twenty or twenty five years ago. But I think I like reading books with short chapters uh, <laughs> and having that sort of demarcation of time of my own time, um, being able to say right. You know, I've, I've got to the end of that chapter. Um, now I need to do the washing up and then be able to start another chapter rather than being in the, the guts of, of a 10,000 word chapter or something. Um, and I think, the, I imagine, I'm guessing I'm probably not alone in that. So book one had 10 chapters, book two had 19 or 20 chapters. I'll let you, I definitely uh, can identify with that one. Uh, a final one then, a final question. Just how does it feel when you get that book, when it's been published? That's it. You you receive that copy. It's in your hand. That physical thing of your your work. There it is. I mean, it uh, it feels great. It does feel great. Um, there's no no other way of saying that really. I think nothing. Although that that first one was self published, um, with everything that goes along with that, nothing will probably beat that feeling in terms of that being that first one. Obviously, the second one. Uh, you know, it has colour color picture section in the middle of it and, you know, um, all sorts of uh, money spent on it that wasn't spent on the first one um, in various different ways. Um, and getting that was, was an incredible experience as well. Um, but but that first one, uh, nothing beat that, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, as can only imagine, can only imagine. So you, you book bottled then. Um, do you want to tell the listeners wh where they can get it, uh, how they can access it? You can get it uh, in larger branches of uh, WH Smith 
and water stones that should be on the shelf in there. If you go and into a smaller branch, ask them to stock it for a start. <laughs> um, but if they if they don't, they'll be able to order it in for you. Otherwise, it's probably in a few other shops around and about. Uh, probably, I think it's definitely in a few br- in foil in Birmingham anyway. And then just through the usual sort of online retailers as well. Uh, so you can get it on waterstone.com. Um, you can get it on Book Depository. You can get it on the the dreaded Amazon as well. <laughs> the dreaded. <laughs> I like how you got that bit in. Uh, and, and what uh, about yourself I online? Prefer, I Go on, sorry. buy it for somewhere else because I get the publisher gets a better margin, which means I get a better margin. So if, if you feel so inclined, buy it from somewhere else than Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, what about yourself online then? Uh, where can any of the listeners uh, catch yourself and um, follow along uh, social media, such like? You can follow me on Twitter at BenjaMarkR, which is B E N J A Mark R. And you can go to my website, which is polyfootmedia.com, which is P O L I footmedia.com. Um, and on there, you'll find lots of book related stuff um kind of casts like this you know links to that bits where i've been on the radio and tv and so on um so you can kind of follow the, the journey and get a bit of additional content yeah and, and we're obviously your, your twitter handle will be included in this when this is uh, put out on social media so yeah d- do click on that yeah. folks and uh, go along and then you can uh, easily find your way to, to mark's book uh, to Ben's book, <laughs> Mark's book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm getting tired. Uh, so uh, somebody so, emailed me the other day and called me Robert. Um, so <laughs> 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 I, I think the middle name is preferable to the surname. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, it's it's been uh, it's been a really interesting chat. Actually, uh, certainly learned learned a thing or two along the way. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, hope the book goes well great really enjoyed that thank you excellent yeah so our thanks to uh, to uh, Ben Roberts and his book Bottled so please do uh, go check that out as you as mentioned you know where you can get it and Ben's uh, Twitter handle will be included in this when it's out uh, if you're not sure and you go through that and and find a copy for yourself it certainly yeah, sounds very very interesting but yeah I'll, th- I'll thanks to Ben for joining us today and thanks to you for tuning in to another edition of the uh, the dugout podcast here on WFI um, until the next time I've been Andy Wales here on WFI thanks for listening and bye bye now